Byzantium and friends. I'll start with a provocative question this morning. How do you know that anything that you hear on this podcast is true? I've mentioned before that there are very high levels of trust that go into the building of scholarship, actually. You know, for all that we verify our sources and peer review and check everything, try to check everything, and we're, we take a very critical stance toward the work of colleagues and predecessors. When all is said and done, the whole edifice, you know, is built on a great deal of implied trust because we can't verify everything, we can't suspect everyone's motives. You know, we take on a lot of the work of our colleagues and predecessors and assume it's in good faith and presumably someone else will come along later on to, you know, check everything again, uh, double check and, you know, make sure that it's... uh, sound, even though it may have already been built into some part of a foundation of something. And the way this works is there, there's a lot of gatekeeping that's built into the production of scholarship and the career of any academic scholar from you know, graduate school and graduate exams and dissertations and getting your chapters back in the defense and then being hired and then the peer review at the press and then reviews that are published after a book or appears and and then you know critical reception by scholars and then everybody who reads it does so critically and so forth so when all is said and done you know you expect that any scholarly theory has been through you know has run the gauntlet of this kind of critique it's very difficult in my field, our field, for outright fraud. Like the kind of thing that you get in the social sciences or the hard sciences because the data isn't published, right? So the person performing the experiment or, or you know, running the lab has the data and not everybody has access to that. In, in our case, all of the data is out there. Like we're citing the same sources and you know, it's very rarely new information, new material that comes into the discussion. So outright fraud is difficult. Then there's bias. And you know, even though we don't want to trick people, all of us, of course, have biases and preferences and you know, theoretical um, you know, allegiances and so forth, these do shape our work, uh, but collectively we rely on the, the overall context of critical scrutiny and reception to correct for some of those or make the necessary adjustments. But, but, and this is what I'm getting at it with today's episode, all of this presupposes that we are all free to write and say things that we think. Because imagine a scenario where in addition to all of the problems of you know, bias and so forth, we also have a case where many of us are not free to talk about history, which includes you know, the history of nations and religions and ethnicities and identities and things that matter a lot to people today in institutions and countries. If we're not free to speak about those as scholars, as historians, right? The, the way we, we see things, but have to bend what we say and what we write to the ideological priorities of institutions or, or groups or, or governments. 
there are in fact very many countries today where this freedom does not exist and where most of what's written on certain topics of history, national history, and religion does not come from a place of intellectual freedom and has to be at least initially thought of as reflecting ideological priorities of institutions. Now, to, to a degree, this is a problem that affects everyone everywhere, but less so in universities that have institutionalized academic freedom, which in the United States takes the form of academic tenure. Academic tenure is not just some sort of, you know, guild reward, like, oh, you've worked here for X number of years, you now get this perk as a kind of professional reward. No, its function is specifically to protect the profession that produces knowledge from pressure by outside agents who have financial or ideological or political interests in shaping that knowledge in particular ways. Think about it. Uh, my field covers all of <laughs> Balkan history, a great deal of Near Eastern or Middle Eastern history, all those national groups, every religion that has ever been in it has a vested interest in shaping the narrative in one way or another. And if you, if you go online and you look up any particular question of, you know, Byzantine or medieval history or whatever, you will find that there are people with very, very strong views who get very, very worked up about it, turning to you know, personal polemics and attacks and even death threats and so on about what would otherwise seem to be fairly obscure and possibly even trivial matters, but um, even those uh, can become the, the focus point of, of, of intense you know, political partisanship. Now, I get emails of this sort, not that many, nothing to be too worried about. At times, such messages reach chairs of departments or possibly even deans, you know, that, oh, this person is writing, you know, what I wrote in that book is very offensive to group X or Y or whatever because this is our view of history and so, and so forth. These go nowhere because there is an institution in place that protects scholars from the public in precisely this kind of context, and that institution is tenure. So long as the institution of tenure holds, it's not a matter that like a chair of department or a dean will get this message and conduct an investigation and try to fire the researcher, but ah, no, the tenure got in the way. No, no, no. It's that there's no connection between those two things. There's no process. It just doesn't exist. And in part, it's because even outside groups that want to protest against what's being written by a member of staff at a university, they know that that's not how it works. And so, you know, when they send angry emails, it's just to vent. It's not like they expect anything to happen. But if you take the institution of tenure away, an entire apparatus of, you know, protest and attack will develop, it will emerge and will institutionalize itself. So, in other words, instead of having institutional protections for freedom of research, 
we will have institutions that translate political pressure from the outside into academic research priorities at universities. And this is happening already. It's happening in the United States, wherever tenure has been withdrawn. And tenure has by now been withdrawn from the majority of scholars who teach and research at American universities. This has happened in two ways that we discuss in the episode. Uh, One is through a neoliberal managerial standpoint of the uberfication of academic labor, where instead of hiring full-time tenured faculty, you just hire contingent faculty to do this course or that course or a bundle of courses and pay them very little with no benefits, no protections. And that kind of labor force has ballooned to now a majority of the academic labor force in the United States and elsewhere. And the second is by state legislatures passing laws that either, I don't know, abolish or severely curtail the protections afforded by tenure or make it possible for political interventions uh, to affect uh, academic careers. And these are now mushrooming across the country, in particular states more than others. And few people have drawn attention to this and its implications as eloquently as my guest today. Jacques Berlinerblau is a professor at Georgetown University. Uh, in a, he has a chair of uh, Jewish civilization, but his writings I mean, really span a diverse range of topics from secularism and religion and in American politics and the campus novel and generally how universities work. Just a really amazing range of topics. And and he's a very, very witty uh, and perceptive writer. And I came across one of his articles in the Chronicle of Higher Education that was specifically about tenure um, and how its erosion is is a threat to all of the you know academic values that we have. And I started digging around, and then he I contacted him. He very generously sent me his book, Campus Confidential: How College Works or Doesn't for Professors, Parents, and Students, which focuses um, on a number of problems in the American university scene, but insofar as tenure is concerned, primarily the first uh, problem that I identified, that is the replacement of tenure-track faculty with contingent faculty who don't really have those protections uh, unless they're extended to them by the, facu- the tenure-track faculty who, who um, you know, run some important committees at universities. But the, the whole process of producing original knowledge has become much more insecure um, because of this transformation. And The book has some satirical elements, but it also has a very, very serious point about how we protect academic integrity and values um, in this context. So I don't want to go on much longer in my introduction. Um, Most of the points are made in a a more witty way by Jacques himself. Um, I will say that in the um, description of the episode, I will link to some of the online uh, publication some of his articles on this question. Um, as, as if you look him up, you will find that he writes for uh, news outlets, uh, kind of tr- translating what's going on in the w- world of uh, academia just to the general public, uh, but also on a wide range of topics. I encourage you to uh, to read him. Uh, he's very witty and eloquent, and I, I find that there's a deep core of sort of humanist values at at the heart of his writing that I sympathize with very much. 
This was a truly fun discussion, and I thank Jacques for accepting my invitation. Jacques, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really am excited that you agreed to come on. I, I didn't know if you would because you know we're in very different fields, but I have been very concerned about the state of American universities for some time. And it seems that we've reached a kind of inflection point where it's like hitting the news and there's like fast paced changes taking place. And I like just this morning, I opened the Chronicle website and there was a lead article on uh, Florida, I think, voting to make post-tenure review mandatory across the system and so forth. So it seems that there are like rapid short-term changes taking place right now, but they are taking place against the background of some fairly deep systemic changes that you seem to have your pulse on that. And you've written a book about that, which I'll mention in the introduction. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about those deep systemic changes because they affect the way we teach and do research. And that affects, by extension, you know, everything that my audience is getting from the scholars I bring on in, in the long run. Um, so I wanted to talk a focus here on academic tenure and what it does for us, what its, what its work is supposed to be. But <clears throat> we can get into some of the background issues that shape it. Could you tell us, for those who are, don't work in academia, what tenure is and what the rationale was for creating it? Uh, absolutely. Um, tenure, or at least the modern conception of tenure, dates back uh, in terms of its origin to the 1940s statement of principles of academic freedom and tenure. And that was formulated by the AAUP. And I believe it was called the American Colleges and Universities, something, or Association of American Colleges and Universities. Ultimately, what the goal of those statements was, uh, they were geared at preventing from professors disappearing in the middle of the night. So there had been a long running quarter century of outspoken and opinionated scholars sharing their hot takes on matters ranging from U.S. involvement in World War I uh, to U.S. involvement in World War II to the dangers of big oil, to communist worldview, and poof, they were gone. So these cases often came to national attention, and I think the professors, even the ones that weren't aligned with the perspectives of uh, those who trespassed, uh, came together and they argued there had to be a better way, and we needed fundamental protect protections as a guild. Yeah, I think this is important to stress right at the outset, because sometimes I talk to my students, like undergraduate students, just in general, like, what is tenure? Why does it exist? And I ask them, and many of them seem to think it's some sort of like professional job perk that you get, like as if you were like a civil servant in France, and you're like pampered, and like, they give you this just to make your life cozy. And when I explain to them the connection between, you know, job security and being able to teach freely and publish freely and not disappear in the night, as you said, that it clicks, like they get it, but they'd never thought of it before, which is kind of striking. What's even more striking is they think everyone's tenured. Uh, they have no idea what the gradations are amongst their faculty. Right. And that ambiguity has had detrimental effects for us the scholars, the facts that our students don't know who's who or what's what or who's not receiving health insurance and who is or 
who's majorly published and who's not, uh, has created no small manner of complete chaos uh, in terms of our contact with undergraduates in American higher education. So I'm, I'm with you. They don't understand tenure. They start to get the rationale as they get older. And when they deal with opinionated professors, perhaps such as ourselves, that really have something to say, then they're like, oh, I get it. You need these protections. If not, you would disappear in the middle of the night. But even more surprising to me is they wouldn't know the difference between an emeritus and an adjunct. They literally have no idea. And I don't even think they care, which is sobering. I don't think it's that important to them at this point. Who's who? Well, let's talk about some of the structural realities, and then we can get to students, student perceptions. So can you tell us who has or potentially has tenure today in an American university and who doesn't? And wh why does that difference exist? Well, I mean, tenure, we of late have likened tenure to a type of lottery, lottery system. Uh, the purchase to buy a ticket to participate in the lottery, you have to devote between six and 15 years of your life in graduate school towards receiving a PhD. Uh, I wish I could tell you that amongst those recipients of PhDs who then apply for the very sparse uh, number of tenure track jobs, I wish I could tell you that the very, very best receive the tenure track jobs. But unfortunately, I don't think that's necessarily the case. So who has tenure today? We could break it down according to various criteria. Roughly 23% of all scholars currently practicing in the United States are tenured, roughly 8.3% are probationary or tenure track. It means seven out of every 10 professors that our non-professorial friends, civilians, as I call them, encounter in their lives do not have tenure. Ergo, the vast overwhelming majority of American scholars do not have tenure. Right, and that, that's an aggregate. So in some fields, students may encounter a higher percentage of faculty who have tenure or, or can aspire to it. Um, versus the what you call contingent faculty who can be non-renewed or fired very easily, right? So in some fields, there might be a greater dependence on those, in others less. Um, I've, I've seen the numbers tick up in the classics departments that I've, you know, at, at Ohio State. We, we gradually came to depend on contingent faculty teaching more and more. And that meant that of all the people that you encounter teaching and possibly publishing and giving papers at a university, there are fewer and fewer who have that protection. So how has this come about? How did it how did it reach the point where the majority of instruction at American universities takes place by people who don't have that protection? Mm, I guess I would say the frightening inertia of capitalism. Uh, the system was working well. If you look back to the 70s, where we had above 50% of our professorate was tenured, um, that was the golden age of not only American higher education, but global higher education. The United States was the apple of every other nation's eye. I mean, they'd want to send their best and their brightest to our country to study. The question of why it started to collapse and who is responsible uh, is a major question. Here's another question. Was it a murder or was it a suicide, right? Was it a homicide or a suicide? There are a lot of self-inflicted wounds. I don't want to speak about those first and foremost, right? But yeah. there are a lot of things that we, the professorate, 
didn't think about uh, sufficiently, I would say 20, 30 years ago. That's clearly not the primary cause, but we could have made some different decisions uh, to protect our guild and our vocation from the ravages that it's currently enduring. I would say, ultimately, if you were looking for one monocausal, and nothing in life, as we know, Anthony is monocausal, if you were looking for one monocausal explanation, um, the exigencies of um, inequality and capitalism and the refusal of university administrations to pay their academic labor force uh, a fair and decent wage. And what tenure does is it absolutely guarantees uh, a livable standard of existence for professional scholars. It's simply too expensive, says the board of trustees, says the provost says the university president, to grant tenure as generously as we might have uh, half a century ago. Yeah, there are institutions where I can see that that is a fiscal reality, that when they say something like that, it's true. And there are other institutions where the numbers just don't add up. So uh, I see universities that have massive endowments, billions and billions of dollars, and they're following the same kind of fiscal logic. And if you ask why isn't that money being used to hire people who are primarily the ones who carry out the mission of the institution, you find that the endowment is locked away, <laughs> right? That it's been turned over to some hedge fund managers who, in order to accept that position of growing the endowment, have said, okay, but it has to be insulated from you know the academic units reaching their hands into it. At which point... So if I could rephrase what you just said, it like it seem what seems to hang in the balance is whether the professoriate is a viable middle class profession. Right? Like like what Uber is doing to, you know, people who transport other people. Like there was a time when you could think that that is a viable, you know, middle class job and now it's been pushed down out of the middle class, right? So why is this happening to the professoriate? Like, like put differently. Okay, so you can hire not um, you can hire contingent faculty. Al almost like think of it as like an Uber. You're just going to hire someone to do this one, you know, fair. Why is the same not being done to like the deans, right? Or or fiscal executives, and, and not just at universities, right? Like if we're trying to downsize costs, I'm pretty sure you can get people cheaply to do all kinds of these. Why Why are some professions being kept in a kind of, you know, white collar kind of orbit and others are being pushed down? You know, uh, great question. For, I just want to add that while that downsizing or casualization is the technical term, the casualization of the academic labor force is occurring, we are simultaneously witnessing uh, administrative bloat or something like the five-fold increase of administrators on American college campuses, right? So one argument that Mr. Capitalism can make is, oh, we had to hire all these administrators, you know, DEI folks, people to run the sports programs, people to run the history department, lawyers, consultants, right? And we can't devote that amount of our yearly budget to our teaching uh, to to our, our teaching faculty. That, that's one way of looking at it. Um, I don't necessarily agree. Another thing that needs to be mentioned is you talked about universities with large endowments. Uh, we have to also think about state systems and state mm. legislatures across the country 
simply deciding they were pulling out of public higher education and they were going to cut and cut and cut and cut support. And again, what's funny is this was something that was working. American higher education in the 70s, 80s and 90s was probably as good as any educational system in the history of civilization. I know it's kind of apples and oranges. How do you but I mean, I don't know, Timbuktu, you name it. Uh, you know, what was the court in Baghdad? What was that called? Uh, the House of Wisdom. Wherever the, right, the House of, excuse me, the House of? Wisdom, I think. House of Wisdom. Wherever there was great learning and a lot of people were being well-educated, right? I think the United States in that golden age, post-World War II, had, um, had achieved that standard. Why did it happen to us? Here's where we might get to issues of guild solidarity and the absence of an ethos of communality and working together and all sharing a common destiny, uh, which afflict our vocation. I've often thought about humanists because I have one doctorate in the humanities, you're a humanist. I think about the way I was trained, Anthony. Um, I spent four years in an archive um, studying kind of Punic inscriptions and votive inscriptions, right? I was alone. It did nothing to sharpen my social skills, nor my love for my fellow man and, and woman and mankind. I mean, there was there is an isolating component to study, to deep study of the humanities, which I don't think is nugatory when we try to understand why it's so hard for us to come together around a common cause. Uh, we're all odd people. Uh, we're oddballs and fuddy-duddies. We're used to being alone. We're used to working as soloists. I'm speaking about the humanities. The economists mm -hmm. are totally different. Right. You, you ever seen those journal articles with like 27 authors, right? Yes. They're different, right? But we were just low-hanging fruit. We were ripe for the picking, right? We're just people that are isolates by nature that did not form dense networks, that never thought about the importance of protecting our guild from the intrusions of um neoliberal capitalism and here we are decimated and we're kind of like taxi drivers in in new york in the 80s we're i mean they don't have the doctorates we have the doctorates but we're in the same position scrambling uh to maintain a scrap of dignity for our field and basically preparing the obituary uh which is where i think we are right now i mean we're all mm -hmm. essentially acknowledging the tenure system as we know it is going to sunset. Is it a decade? Is it three decades? It's never going to be the same. So the lovely life that you and I have led, and I have nothing to complain about, right? I have been the agreed a yeah. great beneficiary yeah. of tenure. I cannot look my undergraduates, my brightest undergraduates in the eye, and I can't say to them, you too, all this could be yours, right? I, I can't say that to them. In fact, I dissuade them yes. uh, from becoming one of us. So this isolation, this working alone, the lack of collective action, is this what you were referring to earlier as the kind of collective suicide of the profession? That's one component of it, absolutely. Um, so we might call those the um, material circumstances in which we create our product, right? We work alone, we think alone, we spend years and years and years just just studying absolutely specialized and esoteric discourses. I mean, we're both kind of, well, you're a professional antiquarian. I'm a former antiquarian. And we know what that life demands, right? The mastery of languages, right? Yeah. Um, the mastery of dead languages. And dead the mastery, languages. 
you know, also like, but like the German and I remember like learning Dutch in a week because I had to read this one thing that wasn't translated. I mean, we've all done that and it's wonderful and it's beautiful, but strangely enough, neoliberalism doesn't seem to care, you know, like shingles doesn't care. Neoliberalism doesn't, we're not um, profitable uh, in any way, shape or form. Here's something interesting. I remember the canary in the coal mine, maybe you remember this, was Assyriology departments. Remember that? When all these yes. Assyriology departments yes. <laughs> disappearing in the middle of the night in the 90s. We're like, hey, what happened to our Assyriology department? We loved it. And people were saying, well, there are not enough people registering for it and we can't get enrollments. And now the self-suicide. And the professor doesn't really want to teach uh, because he's in Iraq and wants to be there for three years on a dig. And I think this is where we made some mistakes, right? Our love of research, our love of our time to go out in the field, if we're anthropologists, or to go back to the archive, or just to sit at home and write, uh, we started to see undergraduates as speed bumps, uh, preventing us from getting to our destination in time. And, uh, this is where we created an opening, I feel, for our administrative overseers uh, to divide and conquer us. Uh, they were like, okay, you want to spend another year in Lisbon in an archive? Sure, knock yourself out, uh, get some foundation to pay your salary, and we can hire seven adjuncts uh, for that price. For what we would pay your salary, right, for one semester, we can have seven adjuncts teach your courses. And I think that was very, very short-sighted on our part. Yeah, you explain in your book exactly how the incentive structure is such as to propel, you know, those who are uh, you know, research oriented into an increasingly more detached uh, career, you know, work from from teaching undergraduates. Mm. And, you, you know, you give arguments for why this has been detrimental to the field um, in general. Um, I am I'm in the same situation. By the way, I remember the Assyriology uh, massacres. And I would sometimes, yeah, I would tell my field, like, is Byzantine studies like the next Assyriology? Like, what reason do we have to expect that we will be spared? Especially in the US, where there's no kind of like organic, there's no patriotic or national reason why this should be kept uh, around. Um, and I, I feel the same when I'm speaking to students and especially graduate students. Like I feel really, really sad that they won't have the same opportunities um, or many of them won't. And and it's such a difficult road for them. Um, in, in other words, like I don't know if my profession will, will replicate into the next generation. And in, in fact, right now I'm beginning to think that it won't. And this has real consequences. It not just for, those who hold the positions, like our life circumstances and our demographic, you know, profiles and so forth, but for the teaching and research uh, that is their our core mission. And I've been alarmed by you know the, the cases that I'm reading about, where contingent faculty who don't have those protections are being fired for reasons that, you know, they're not not like spying for the Russians or committing homicide, right? But for well, anyway, so, you know, like the case at, at Hamline, I think, where there's a art historian was fired for uh, including images of the Prophet Muhammad in a course on Islamic art, having, you know, explained exactly the source of those images in Islamic art, that this is not some monolithic position that Muslims have had, 
telling the students and like doing it exactly right. And yet one voice apparently was allowed to, you know, brand that as, as offensive and, and there you go. And, and just a more recent one about racial justice. And I mean, you teach that in Florida now, I guess you're, so if you don't have those protections, suddenly all of those topics become very, very dangerous and you don't go near them. And that allows certain interests to win, like very particular ones, the ones that will complain the most. Absolutely. Um, the Hemline case is really, really disturbing, right? But it shouldn't disturb or surprise us because this happens all, all the time. And again, that that metaphor, the, the professor disappearing in the middle of the night uh, because they ran afoul of a politician, uh, they ran afoul of a corporation. Uh, Jane Stanford apparently was quite a spry uh, interferer in academic affairs, and she was notorious for getting rid of faculty members that were critical of her business model, right? So another thing we have to think about is just just cheesing off people in your own university community. Um, this mostly comes from the right. It comes a little bit from the left as well, though. Um, but I would say right now the more significant threats uh, are coming uh, from the right. Another thing we need to discuss is the rise of donors. Um, what I'm noticing at a lot of R1s even is any new course of study is donor driven. Any energy, uh, getting a faculty together for a meeting, hey, we've got this brand new idea, we've got a donor, or, and I'm gonna get in a lot of trouble for this, a foundation, because I know we're supposed to look at the foundations as sacrosanct, right? I have real difficulties with certain foundations that are essentially para departments, right? They, they run like 40 departments across the country, and they're putting their people because I don't know who these foundations are or who they're answerable to or whether there's actual academic expertise at the helm or who's running their hedge fund. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of interference in um, the normal processes of American higher education. What, what I think is funny is you and I are kind of these uh, we're preserved in amber. We're these ossified. We're remembering an academic status quo which with every passing year, fewer and fewer people can even believe existed, right? So what we're asking for seems so far-fetched to even to some of our graduate students. Um, I remember the faculty lounge? Remember that, right? I mean, there's no more faculty lounge. I'm sure Chicago has one, right? We don't have one at Georgetown. We used to have one. And it was this kind of plushy thing with leather chairs and the newspapers on the wood. It was the fact, and there were cookies. There were cookies every day and coffee. It is unthinkable at all but maybe 50 universities in the United States, right, that the faculty would have its own place, right, to meet, uh, to confer, to read their newspapers, to do our thing. So, so many of the perks that we grew up with um, are gone and are incomprehensible to the next generation. Yeah, that is even more depressing. Um, not just that the system is, is headed for this big overhaul, but that for a certain generation much younger than us, it has already happened. Like oh, they're already in that logic. And they but, hate us. That's the funny thing. I mean, I mean, they're polite to us, but they're like, oh, those bastards. We're on your side, kids. I mean, you know, I mean, we, we're, we're doing this podcast here. We're trying to call attention to this problem. One other thing I want to say is like 10, 15 years ago, I would say this and people would say, oh, you're crazy. The sky's on fire. Right. And I kind of want to like go on a vigilante revenge tour and just get all these people 
like write an article about all these people that told me you're wrong, you're paranoid, you're insane, you know, Hofstadter, the American paranoid tradition. But there were a few of us saying, we have a very, very big problem and it's coming. And a lot of those who were telling us to pipe down and shut our yappers were college presidents, provosts, yeah. and sort of grandees of academic fields running, you know, scholarly associations. Uh, so there's... You know, there's some payback here, but I guess it's too late for that. And what good will it do anyhow? Well, so there are the broad structural changes taking place, but there's also the more direct assault, kind of made for the news assault on tenure and faculty that's taking place now, like most headlines about Florida are about this. And, you know, honestly, I remember in the 90s when I was a grad student, when like my my view of how the U.S. worked was shaped in many ways by like Chomsky and so forth, and and because I didn't grow up here. Um, Where did you grow? Up? In Greece. In Greece, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Within in sort of communist circles, so that that kind of outsider cynical analysis came came naturally, and I came to the U.S. and I started looking at um, higher education, and at the time. There were people like, I mean, Alan Bloom on the one hand, but also Lynn Cheney mm -hmm. and what, you know, the, the sort of culture wing of the, of the right at the time. And I was listening to Lynn Cheney, like they were on CNN or whatever, Crossfire. I don't know if you remember these. And I thought, wow, they are going to dismantle this entire system. Like I, I could not understand why these U.S. institutions would allow university professors to exist even. Like they were so antithetical to the kind of project that I saw them, um, you know, moving toward. And I, I'm, I'm honestly surprised that it's taken so long. Yeah. Uh, there's also, I mean, there's Dinesh D'Souza. As oh, well. oh, yes. I mean, Bloom and D'Souza, it's interesting because Dinesh D'Souza, 20 years downstream, that becomes MAGA. Right. That goes off in a really anti higher education direction. Yes. The Bloomians, as I recall them, because I was around at the moment and writing about some kind of related issues, they were coming at it from a much more high cultural yes. uh, disdain. The kind of thing you might still see in the university, you know, the whiff you might get roaming the halls yes. of the University of Chicago, this kind of sense that this wonderful Western canon had been polluted. Uh, by all of this multiculturalism and diversity initiative. So they, they were a little different just in terms of sheer erudition, because I'd much rather read Bloom than D'Souza, right? Just in terms of sheer knowledge. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Chicago, like every interesting thing happens in Chicago. We know that Bloom is associated with Chicago. We know that Saul Bellow had this lifetime kind of independent study going there, right? And he wrote a, a lovely novel about Bloom called um, Ravelstein. Yes. Uh, which is really, really interesting as you think of, you know, what that man was hiding, right, in oh, his yeah. defense of the Western canon. But we digress. You're right. We should have seen it coming. We didn't. The culture wars were in many ways a bit of a distraction to the sort of hard, grimy, mechanical Marxist stuff that was happening, right? You know, people looking at actuarial tables, and figuring out where the redundancies were and where cost-cutting measures. Uh, so I think we were looking at the culture wars and our attention was looking upwards, right? But to our side, 
these very gritty meat and potatoes changes were being made to how professors were being hired and the contracts they were being given. And we had no one to protect us. I know the AAUP tried. I really like the AAUP. I just think they were outgunned. Yes. And we were not up to the task. And, you know, it's on. This is why our graduate students hate us, maybe. Right. Because it was our generation that should have seen this coming, should have had the warning bells. Right. uh, Being rung and telling people we've got to go on strike. We've got to communally work together. But we did it. Another thing. I mean, we talk about like self-inflicted wounds is our internecine strife is so spectacular. And I don't even know on what like vector it is. Like we argue over everything as professors. It is like herding cats, right? We argue, right? I remember yes. once there was a brawl uh, amongst football players in their own locker room yeah. and everybody was feeling bad about it. And they asked one football player, said, you know what? We're football players. We fight. That's what we do. And I was like, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, we're professors. We fight, all right? We argue over dumb, petty stuff. That's the way we are. That's the way we roll. But does, that does not conduce to guild solidarity and collective action. That is the horrible lesson that we've learned by just being ourselves and following our inclinations. And we never had that leadership figure. We never had our MLK, you know, or our or our Fidel Castro or Che Guevara. We never had that figure from our own ranks who led us and said, you know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there's there's a war going on right now, right? You are going to be consigned to oblivion as a guild. So it's it's really, uh, it makes me despair. I, I'm not sure that the lesson has been learned actually. Um, but anyway, so the reason I mentioned Alan Bloom is because he was a version of the right that, that valued the canon. Mm-hmm. And therefore it was a kind of investment on the part of the right in that tradition, in the humanities. Now, you know, they have their own culture wars. They have the things they like and don't like, but it was the part that gave me some kind of hope that, okay, they're invested in the conversation. Lynn Cheney, who is now Ron DeSantis, is not. Right. Like, they don't want the conversation. They don't care about it at all. They're perfectly fine with decimating the humanities entirely and maybe having a few flunkies teach some, you know, pro, you know, rah-rah patriotic Western Civ or whatever um, on a, on a, a very contingent basis. And at the same time, exactly, there were the the spreadsheet analysts at the same time who were looking for marginal efficiencies and cutting costs and all of that. And we're just left with those two now. And I think those are the two that are kind of whittling away at the viability of the humanities as a, an academic profession. And the younger generation, however disappointed they might be in us, however much they see you know, this, I think the situation of insecurity that they're facing, I still don't think they realize how much danger they're in. I still don't think they see it because they're going to be so extremely vulnerable to disappearing, right? Like anything you say in class, anything, the, the, the Florida, uh, the decision by the, oh, I can't remember the, the name of the exact board that made this decision, but like to mandate post tenure review, right? And one of the grounds on which someone can, um, a negative post-tenure review can result is student complaints. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just just student complaints. Yeah, and it's like, okay, maybe a student complains that you're insufficiently patriotic, right? But 
the, the students are now increasingly diverse, which is great. But what does that mean for like a Byzantinist like myself, where I have to confront every Balkan nationalism, every single one of them, right? I have people who are, get upset when I say that in the 12th century, this city was on that side of the border, not on this side of the border. <gasps> no, how dare you, right? You make claims about ethnicity. You Not only those, I've got like pretty much all the religions, <laughs> every version of Christianity, Islam, you know. Yeah. So you're now, and okay, it's not just that you will say things to offend people. That That's one issue that we can wrap our heads around, right? But what about the complaint that you're not actively telling the history the way they want it to be told, right? Right. Um, so this is the assault on expertise, that's the way I would describe it, right? Uh, it used to be understood even by people in, in Washington, D.C. and various state houses, let the experts do their thing, right? So let um, Professor Caldellis duke it out with other Byzantinists or other experts, and they'll be the ones who will decide. And what you see in North Dakota, what you see in Texas, what you see in Florida, and you're going to see this in all the red state houses, right, is a new logic which says, no, we decide. We're the ones who are going to decide whether Caldellus can say X, Y, or Z, which is truly, truly frightening. Now, you mentioned post-tenure, right? But what we have for the fall session in Texas, uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick is bringing us an end-of-tenure bill, right? So the piece I wrote for the Chronicle of Higher Education, I said 2036 is probably in my dystopian universe when we're going to start to see the real collapse of tenure, Right. I'm starting to wonder, right, if this bill passes in Texas and there's no more tenure in Texas and every red state legislature is going to follow, right, it'll take years for it to get through the Supreme Court, effectively tenure will be non-existent for maybe, I don't know, 20 to 30 percent of institutions in the United States, right? So think of UNC, the University of Texas system, Arkansas, Alabama, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. uh, this is absolutely frightening you mentioned this thing about student complaints and what i find the right wing is very good at doing really good at doing is unraveling things right uh they foment rage they're rage merchants and rage purveyors right and they find ways to take liberal institutions and set the institutions against one another stanley crouch had a very interesting analysis of the 60s the late stanley crouch said what what the powerful learned in the 60s is when professors and students were aligned, they were an unstoppable juggernaut. There's nothing to do to stop them, right? When professors and students were mm. marching together, right, you know, there was going to be serious pushback on the war in Vietnam. The, you are not going to mess with college budgets, right? Um, I really feel one of the lessons that emerged for these sinister forces, we don't know who they are, was make sure the professors and the students never link arms, right? So course teacher evaluations is an example of that. This brilliant item you've brought to our attention in Florida, complaining about a professor, right? There used to be, and you come from a European country, I used to see this in Italy and France. I was like, oh my God. I mean, the professors and the students, were, they were like this, right? I mean, it, it, was, it was like a family. Sorry, my dog is scratching in the background. See, right? yes. so there was this familial 
sort of relationship and and the professors were beloved by the students right that was obliterated absolutely obliterated after the 60s because certain people saw the danger of those types of relationships you could argue there's a lot of good things that happened as a result there's less like sexual assault and sexual harassment because that came with that family sort of feeling right mm -hmm. i mean everybody's cooking meals together after friday seminar strange things and not good things are going to happen so they're they're positives and they're negatives but that rupture between professors and students has been absolutely detrimental to the professorate. Yeah, this is one of the things that you analyze the best in the book. And I really like this part. And where you show how students and professors just have drifted so far apart that their lives barely intersect. Students mm -hmm. don't know what their faculty are, just like you said at the beginning. Like they have no idea of the differences in ranks and career prospects and what these people actually do outside the classroom. You're exactly right. And they kind of occasionally intersect like in the classroom and then they go back to their own separate. And the parts where you talk about like the like sexual relationships between faculty and students, that is the kind of thing that we obsess about in theory. But I think you're exactly right. Like this sort of thing used to happen a lot more, right, in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And is now so, like, I know so few cases of things like that happening. And when they do, it's almost always to get married and have children. Like it's, it's the most, you know, conventional, right? When it used to be something from rebellious to embarrassing. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, these these sorts of things hardly exist. And yet the institutions so, are focusing on like professors are a danger. They're like, anyway. Well, I was charting this right through campus novels. I'm a, I teach courses on campus. novels. I love campus novels, right? Uh, which right. are like dysfunctional right? because they're, they're like so real to the people that we see. Yes. Right? The fiction is real. And what I was noticing in one of the most important campus novels of the last 20 years, right, uh, which was um, Tom Wolfe's uh, I, Charlotte Simmons, right, he understood that there was this like, like the undergraduates weren't interested in the professors and the professors would never dare because of the HR departments for very good reasons. Professors had learned, right, don't pursue that erotic uh, fascination, if you are to have it, you will lose your job really, really fast. Mm -hmm. You'll be canceled. So I was looking at these cancel, uh, these um, campus novels, and what I was realizing is the literary um, uh, representation of the American university had really understood something that we have drifted apart, right? So their goods, their positives and their negatives that come with that solidarity, right? But mm -hmm. one thing that we don't have is that solidarity and we don't have each other's backs and i do feel any last ditch hail mary attempt to save tenure to save the professorate is going to have to be just reams of students coming together with their professors and trying to save save their education so it'll probably happen at public institutions before it happens at private ones that's my guess Yes. And that was the impression that I got when I would speak to students about tenure and explain it to them. And they kind of intellectually understood it. Also, how it benefited them in, in the sense that then they hadn't thought about this. Was their professor telling them what the professor thought? Right. 
or were they getting some filtered version, right? And they had never thought about that. So I said, just imagine if I here had to, you know, be careful of every little thing that I said so as not to offend a constituency that a dean might be cultivating for some donation, <laughs> right? Like you don't see any of that, but it's resulting in me suppressing and, and self-censoring, right? Um, and they understood that, but they are very far from linking elbows with us and and marching, you know, to preserve it's tenure. Exactly, it's exactly in my comedy blasphemy and in international relations course. Think of that comedy blasphemy and in we have to look at the Charlie Hebdo cartoons. We have to look at anti-Semitic insult comics, right? We have to look right. at cartoonists that almost set South Africa ablaze because of racist portraiture, right? And I told the kids day one. If I didn't have tenure, I could not teach this class. They had no idea what I was talking about. By the end of the semester, they got it. They were like, oh, yeah, this is kind of a we're never going to encounter these materials again in college. And the only reason you could do this, Berlitterblau, is because you have tenure and, you know, we can't take you. Down. Some of them actually said that, like, we would have taken you down yeah. uh, on TikTok or on Instagram. But then we realized you had tenure. So we figured, all right, we may as well. We may as well stay for the course. And they liked it uh, because the course was set up very, very carefully uh, to not make people feel that they were being attacked. But you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. Once they know what tenure is, they start to appreciate it a little bit more, I think. Yeah. I've had guests turn down the podcast because it, like, I, I wrote to them and I said, this thing here that you talk about is fascinating, mm -hmm. right? But like, they don't have tenure. And it's a, something that like in their home countries is not going to play very well, but it's okay if it's buried in an appendix in a book published by Cambridge University Press, whatever, but they don't want it like really out there because they can get in trouble. Um, so I've seen it like even on the pod, like my guests here on the podcast listening to me right now, they should know that there this filtering has already set in. Like there are guests who won't come on because they don't have this protection. How about tenured guests? Have you ever had like somebody with tenure who won't come on? Yeah, but not for, okay. not for that. It's usually scheduling. Or okay, because that would be execrable, right? I mean, yes. really execrable. Like if you have tenure and you're still scared, you know, because you want this committee chairpersonship or something. Oh my god! I mean, no, it's not that they're scared, but they're they're, they're scared because of the medium. Yeah, and parenthesis. Right. So all the stuff that you say about how the training formats us, and you know, as human beings, not just as as scholars, and I think. Just as you said, I think it has made the professoriate way less erotic than it might have been. Like all the glamour has been stripped from the profession. Okay. But it also makes people very, um, uh, it's difficult for them to engage with like new media. Like a, a podcast for Byzantium is like, for Byzantinists is like something from an alien civilization. It's, we're not trained in it, right? You give your boring <laughs> conference paper, you write your boring article. Yeah, but so to come funny. on a podcast and like hold forth or banter, that's just not yeah. in the job description. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is just really My guests have overall performed quite well, I'm happy to say. Thank you all for, for not having been trained at all in this. Um, neither have I. I'm kind of making it up. Okay, so I want to get back to one more dynamic, sort of looking to the future, because let's suppose that these tenure protections wither even more than they have and we now have a professoriate in the in the humanities that is fearful and and very you know contingent in every way of the word every sense of the word however it will survive 
in a few elite institutions, right? And this is my other fear, not just that the protections will go away, but they will that they will be that we will again have a very very elitist class of people who can in, engage in certain kinds of research and a vast majority who cannot, and it will lead to this imbalance that you know takes us back to like really battle like almost 19th century mm-hmm. where an you know a gentleman aristocrat scholar can afford to you know talk about these topics and everybody else has to keep quiet so as not to offend some someone with money yeah i mean I, some of my earlier research earliest research was on heresy um i don't love heretics i'm fascinated by heretics Right, but but there are certain structural preconditions that give rise to heretics, right? That let them do their thing. Mm. Uh, so in American higher education, if it's just going to be Harvard, Princeton, Chicago—I mean, let's name them, right? Uh, Yale. There'll only be maybe ten to fifty institutions that now have tenure, right? Everything I've studied about heresy suggests that intellectual orthodoxies will develop. And yep. they're going to like like crystallize and congeal and they're going exactly. to be really, really hard, right? So um, as I look at some of the most interesting research I've read by other scholars, and this is not a type of anti-elite thing at all, but I just noticed it's come from people with peculiar trajectories through academe. They might not have gone to the, they might have been rejected by, by yeah. Harvard, right? They, they've gone someplace else or they did something weird in their lives. So there's a huge danger for free inquiry uh, if we only let the elite institutions continue tendering. And I think they will continue tendering. Yes. And you can just imagine what that's going to look like. I mean, that's going to be absolutely maybe 50 institutions will have tenure as yep. and it'll be the wealthiest, most well positioned, right, most ideologically homogenous bunch of people exactly. we've ever seen. And um, yeah, that would that would not in any way, uh, that's not going to be good at all. No, it, it will create patricians in every field. That, that's what I'm afraid of. And in my field, I can, I can, this would be a different podcast, but I can explain how, like, just as you said, there, there really isn't a very measurable difference in like quality of academic research that's coming out of someone who is at a small liberal arts college and wherever, and someone who's at, well, I mean, actually, Harvard and Princeton are small liberal arts colleges, but I mean, okay, but I mean, you know, a, a, a lesser known institution out in the heartland versus the Ivy League schools. And the field has benefited immensely from having, you know, like scrappy state school co- scholars make interventions against the kind of congealing orthodoxy of a patriciate. And that will go away. And that's terrible. Like where there is orthodoxy, where orthodoxy is in control, um, there pro- where heresy is in control, there are problems. There's a sort of nice yes. balance between the two, right? Where you want the heretics and and you know and their and their overlords uh, to be in this fruitful sort of scrum over what ideas are about. And I think we had that. That's what's so funny. We had that in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, right? Uh, ultimately, it's bad for undergraduates. I do think that the roadkill in this entire process you and I are discussing today, right? There are two classes of human beings that have just been just pulverized. And the first is the professorate, and it's going to get worse. Uh, but the second is undergraduates, right? My undergraduate experience 
was kind of joyous because it was so weird. I imagine yours was a, there were so many oddballs and freaks that were teaching me as mm -hmm. I look back in retrospect. I can only smile and thank them because they made me think in their own crazy ways, right? They did things that were unconscionable. They did things that could not be, be done today. But we used to have, here's something else I'm doing. We used to have a freaks and geeks ethos in higher education. And I'm finding that a lot of the young PhDs that make it through, the ones who survive this process, are kind of very polished and they've got their networks and they know how to like do the Washington DC shuck and jive, right? They know how to exchange business cards and self-promote. I mean, I'm not against it. I just, I, I like the more freewheeling days uh, where your professor had a real edge and maybe even an odor, you know, a whiff. <laughs> but there's something about these scholars, and I'm not trying to say kids these days. I'm just saying to make it through this gauntlet, to run yeah. this gauntlet, is to develop these kind of survival skills, uh, which do not necessarily draw upon your personal graces or your eccentricities. It's really about yeah, yeah. learning how to get along with certain others, right, and play yeah. certain games. And so, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I miss the eccentricities of the field. Uh, I think Chicago has always been the university where those eccentrics were were welcomed and cultivated and they could roam freely. There's a Philip Roth novel, mm -hmm. I Married a Communist, where a professor's name is Leo Glucksman, and he walks across the campus in a in a cape. I just find that so funny. He has a cape for no apparent reason. I have heard of yes, I've heard of colleagues who wore capes, but this was in the eighties, seventies and eighties. I myself have never seen a professor wear a cape. You you, you got to bring it back, Anthony. You bring it back. <laughs> okay. I um, All right. So I will recommend your book in the introduction. I um, can't explain what it's about. Final thoughts about what the professor, what, if, if there are professors in the audience listening, what are some steps that they can take or how, what kind of solutions do you see as possible, just epigrammatically, because they can read the full argument in the book or wherever? So uh, I, I always think of that scene in the life of Brian where they're going to stone uh, the person who said the Lord's name in vain. And he realizes he's going to die. So he just starts doing a little dance. And he's like, right. Jehovah, 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 Jehovah. And they're just throwing rock. And, and they're saying, why are you doing it? You're going to kill me anyhow. So I guess my advice to the professor, it's twofold. Uh, one is go out flaming, right? Uh, make trouble on your way out, those of us with tenure, and fight for the next generation. That's really, really important. But um, I think of Voltaire, I think of Candide. I've always liked uh, the ending of that work, cultivate your own garden, right? Uh, Cultivez votre jardin. I feel... Every professor makes the world a better place on a daily basis when we walk into the classroom really prepared, really focused, like listening to our kids, when we create a very good syllabus, like we spend like two, three weeks on the syllabus, like thinking how it moves and should they learn this sequentially, right? So to me, a moral and decent act in this universe that is exploding around us, right? Like the last great thing we can do is we can be very conscientious teachers, whether on the graduate or the undergraduate level. And when I see a professor doing that, and there are many of us who do that, I'm just like, okay, we're doing the best we can. This is all we can do, right? Everything else has been kind of taken away from us. Uh, so our moral imperative is to really like smarten up the youth as best we can 
to give them an example of what the world we thought we could bring into being would be like, and to just hope for the best. Um, I cite in the book a professor of mine, a sinologist, who uh, told us that the great lesson of the epic novel of China, The Three Kingdoms, was a standard of decency does not necessarily prevail, but it must exist. I've always been fascinated by that idea, right? That you know you, you can maintain a standard of decency as a professor. Don't think you're going to win this this war, right? Mm -hmm. But the very existence of professors who really, really care about pedagogy and teaching and education and formation, that's it. That's all we can do. That's how we cultivate our gardens. That point comes across beautifully in your book. And I think it's a wonderful place to end this. Um, so Jacques, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure talking with you about this. Um, not a topic in Byzantine studies as such, but I think it affects everything. If so you're like the coolest Byzantine scholar I've ever met. I just want how many have you? Met? A lot of these cats have like beards and you know, and there's <laughs> stuff going on there. Uh, I don't know. I hope I'd be cool with a beard, but uh... they kind of look like end of end of life Tolstoy. They all look that way, but you know. <laughs> all right, it was great. Thank you, Anthony. All right, <laughs> thanks, Jacques. Take care. Bye-bye.